So I wanted to talk a little bit about how things exist today and, you know, kind of stemming from what you were talking about from, with the history of brothels is escorts, escorts and escort agencies have been described in the literature as far back as the mid 20th century with various forms of advertisements on printed materials, like in sort of pulp magazines or neighborhood community magazines in large cities. They were geared towards the individual sex worker who was advertising themselves, as well as organized escort agencies that would do big advertisement. One of the things, the terms it was used is, so we're looking at people that work for an agency slash brothel versus quote unquote street situations. And I don't know if there's a better term and I would like to avoid calling Mm -hmm. someone a street sex worker because that seems marginalizing, but I don't know what is the most appropriate term. So just asking if anybody out there knows that, let us know. Um, Escort agencies originated as brothels and that sent out instead of having the brothel is the location where the, the customer would come as opposed to an escort agency that actually sends a sex worker out to the residence or the hotel. Uh, It acts as a call center that serves as the connection between clients and their escorts without offering the on-site services. So introducing in the mid-century, widespread use of private telephones right after World War II, that allowed escort agencies to become really viable as venues separate from brothels. And eventually, they started to dominate the market. So just also heads up that the article that I was telling you about earlier that was written by these wonderful colleagues of mine, everything I'm talking about right now is pulled from this. They've done unbelievable research I don't think I can post the article because, I mean, it's not really, it's a chapter of a book. I am going to post a link to the book that people can access online, but I can't distribute it. It's incredibly well-written and fascinating. And if you're interested in more information in this area, please look it up. So agencies can range from a single booker operating with a computer and a cell phone, or even just a cell phone all the way up to an established high rent area business office where escorts wait during their shifts to be assigned to clients. And then some agencies will offer temporary housing to people that work as escorts, and then they can even become informal social spaces for the employees to network with each other, discuss clients, and kind of give each other uh, social support, including mentorship and helping of people that are new to the industry Mm -hmm. of how to manage it. So today, uh, those agencies will still advertise in the few newspapers that actually exist. So to avoid legal prosecution, the sex workers can be advertised as dinner companions or dates for corporate functions. So there's a, a, like a, a screening process that's set up by the call agency as a protective measure. But that doesn't always work out, but it's certainly better than someone who's working in a completely unprotected environment unless they're very experienced. Um, So escort agencies do this thing where they're able to add a specific air of legitimacy to this work and hopefully provide that layer of protection. One of the places that we see that this did not happen for several uh, sex workers was in the cases of the Long Island serial killer which still has not been solved to this day are we are huge fans of the author of the book, uh, Robert Kolker. If you haven't read it, it's a true crime masterpiece. And one of the saddest things ever um, because of the wreckage that these deaths caused in the family. So 
Well, um, and like you said, you know, I think there were a number of those girls who at some point worked for an agency. Right. Then once they went out on their own and were utilizing the internet, that's when it does, it, there's another level of dangerousness there. Like you were talking about this screening process, this, you know, bare minimum of information that the agencies try to get because they have the responsibility to protect the people who work for them. And there may, happening. right. And the containment of an agency may, and I'm, I am speaking completely out of the air. So I don't have the data to back this up, but I'm would assume that there are, when you're working with an agency, you're, you may be giving over quite a great percentage of your earnings. Oh, I'm sure. Things. But there is a layer of protection, including what the rules are about substance use or intoxication or even behaviors. It's like, hey, you're representing the agency. You have to stay within this. And then if you are not able to regulate and contain yourself and you go off and you're working on your own, that just can that can add to a a dangerous situation, which certainly in that case is what happened. Yes. Um, However, it. There's some interesting research that came out of the UK with a a research project that they did for three years between 2015 and 2018, and they were looking specifically at the impact of the internet on the sex industry and more specifically for women who were using the internet to work independently. So 89% of the, the sex workers felt that the online platform gave them the power to be independent first off. And 85% of them found that it was very useful for screening and monitoring their clients. And the vast majority, over 70%, said that advertising online had improved their quality of life, which meant improved their safety and working conditions because they were not out on the street soliciting. They could just do it from the comfort of somewhere without, I mean, obviously the the quality of life is going to be much better when you're not having to be out in the elements. Right. Um, that would make a huge difference, sure. especially, I mean, there's also just, I wonder if it is concurrent with the decline of print, because I remember several of the magazines when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, there was Edge Magazine and Frontiers, and they had, Frontiers had what was called the Pink Pages, and that was specifically for people that were um, offering their services as companions or escorts. And that was more of a way, I guess, where people could have a, a sort of a, a clearinghouse. I'm, and I'm not aware of if, the, if that existed for males in Los Angeles, if there were like escort agencies at the time. I know actually there, there are now. There's a lot more activity apparently going on than I would have expected over the last year. I would not have expected... Uh, escort work to have been continuing during COVID, but some of it, it has. Okay. Okay. That's really interesting. But uh, we, this is, and now we're getting into something that you and I would talk about endlessly as it applied to our internship when we were working with offenders. (laughs) So get get ready folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't at least talk a little bit about history of male sex work. Yeah. Although it clearly doesn't dominate the research and the information that we have out there, but I did find some, and I do find it interesting. And yeah, this first piece, I was like, do I put this bullet point in here? Do I even want to say it out loud? But I kind of have to. Um, And like you set it up, we can talk about 
the problematic nature of it. But in ancient times, and specifically, there there's several different types of populations. Ancient times? Are you like, is that days of yore? <laughs> <laughs> olden days? Yes, the olden days. Um, different parts of the world, there was possibly some version of this going on. But in ancient Greece, it was not rare for older men to take boys as sexual partners and also mentor them in life. So um, for uh, professionally, you just how to get by in the community, lots of different areas, often giving them better social status and opportunities. And encouraged by the parents of the children at times for these opportunities obviously this is well no way but but also i mean you did great research there you're also don't forget the point that like many times these were children from from poorer families again that had less means right Right. so it's like it was an opportunity for them to move up Yes. But so like again, you were saying, by today's lens, this is highly problematic, like highly problematic. Because right. because we're seeing, you know, this a child feeling like they have to do this, especially if their parents are encouraging it. I mean, come on, because this is now deemed child sexual abuse. So but I, I, don't, I don't even want to say but. However, it also has to be viewed through the lens of how sexuality was viewed at the time and how the population felt about what someone of that particular age range felt about sexuality as well. So, and, and we don't know that because we're not there. There's no one, there's no 2020 doing interviews on the young men or the children that were in that position. But the way we would look at it now is certainly like, this is a problem. But like you were saying, you and I would have these group sessions with our offenders that were, you know, had gotten out of prison and there would be like a good third of them that would always bring this point up. Oh, this was normal. Absolutely. There were a lot of things that were normal. Slavery was was normal. Women were not allowed to vote. Women were chattel. Women were literally owned. So yeah, there's a lot of things that were quote unquote normal that should not have been normal. So you can't use that excuse. Right. I mean, I I would say we definitely heard this from those that would meet the criteria for pedophilic disorder to where they are trying to convince us and or explain their their ingrained belief systems i mean even oscar wilde so he was jailed for indecency for using the services of young male sex workers in the 1800s and he testified like they i read his testimony and it literally brought me back to sitting back <laughs> into group therapy with you and with these individuals that we were treating. It just, the way that it is so um, romanticized and seen exactly as they're, they're touting here, where they not only are they using these children for sexual partners, but mentoring them in life. I mean, that's like verbatim what you and I would hear or what like we pointed out before the uh, documentary chicken hawk. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, had to say it, had to put it out there um, because that's probably the the furthest back we can look at to look at some sort of male sex work 
Um, clearly there's more shame and more stigma associated with male sex workers, just as a byproduct, if you will, of attitudes towards same sex in general. There were in the 18th and 19th century Britain, there were, uh, these establishments called Molly houses and no, it wasn't where you go get your MDMA, which maybe it is now. I don't know. Um, or is that mall is, I don't know. I don't know the derivative of, of Molly, but <laughs> I know Molly's, it falls under the ecstasy category. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a form of MDMA. I've, <laughs> okay. he- I've heard. Okay good. okay, good. I got it right. Um, that's what I've been told. <laughs> wink. Oh, wait, nobody can see you winking. You don't have to say it out loud. Um, so these meeting places were generally in taverns, public houses, coffee houses, or even just private rooms in the backs of these areas where men could either socialize or possibly meet sexual partners. There's conflicting information about whether or not they were actual brothels where there was the sex trade involved, but in some court proceedings at the time, that's how they were categorized. So whether or not it, to me, it becomes fuzzy. Are they criminalizing prostitution or are they criminalizing gay sex? I don't know. Maybe both, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's tough. Well, this is, and this is really where you started to see a shift of like, of, of marginalization in that way. And mm-hmm. also what we know, because there is more historical documentation of this time is, you know, I'm not justifying anything that Oscar Wilde has said. I mean, brilliant writer and creative, like, you know, sort of part of our literary canon. But, you know, they also just didn't like that he spoke out about a lot of things. So this was what they were going to go after him with. So if you were of a certain level of income and standing in society, everybody turned the other way unless you screwed up, unless you pissed somebody off, and then that would be used against you. Otherwise, it was like, oh, that's great. You know, I'll get married to a society woman. She'll have all the money she needs and I can go play. I'll go to the coffee house. Exactly. I'll get my coffee and my Molly. (laughs) But uh, more recent studies in just the last few years show that 20% of sex workers are male. Uh, There's been some differentiation in the data. I saw it as high as 42% of sex workers are male. There was a research project in 2018 looking at specifically women buying sex from men. And I thought it was so interesting because they found that women who pay for sex are very, very similar to men who pay for sex. And I mean, you know, it, it doesn't matter male to female, um, men paying men or men paying women, but they found that the reasons women pay for sex are because they want to experiment because they don't feel they're sexually compatible with their partner. They're wanting sex, but they don't want an affair. And those are all very similar to the reasons that men do it. And they found that they come from every walk of life. You can imagine just as, um, male solicitors of sex. So that's all I, I that's have a, on that, but that's, well, what I that's important data to have. I, I think, think that's it's important, really important to have. Yeah, exactly. Um, Cause we always like to say how different we are. Right. <laughs> um, so the, crim- I want to touch on the criminalization of sex work, especially in more contemporary times. And as you know, we're talking through history and sex work becomes a quote unquote trade, 
of course, authorities are going to try and regulate it. Most often, unfortunately, it's been through punitive means. And criminalization through the centuries with sex work has resulted in fines, in jail, in public shaming for both the solicitor and the sex worker. Mutilation, uh, men convicted of soliciting sex workers would have their noses cut off sometimes. You know, something <laughs> that everybody could see. Yeah. Um, excommunication, being exiled, and even death, of course. So when we criminalize something, what does it do? It drives it underground. It ends up creating dangerous situations for all involved, um, as we outlined with some of the more recent problematic issues and the ones that we see when we talk about true crime and unfortunately sex workers being targeted for violent crime. So, you know, you were talking about advertising with escort agencies, and I thought an interesting little piece of history was the history of the tart card in Britain and in Europe. So this was really big kind of in the eighties and nineties. And these were, you know, business card size or little pamphlet flyer size cards that were usually posted in phone booths and red light districts where it had kind of a cartoonish drawing of a woman um, in her lingerie or um, had a little sassy title across it with just a phone number. Um, But it was a way of advertising. And this kind of became part of popular culture, you know, what I understand. No, well, uh, let me give you two examples. If anybody remembers the first Bridget Jones movie, one of the embarrassing things that they, there are these theme parties. I don't know if they happen quite so much anymore in, in Britain, but there used to be, a, you'd have a party and the theme would be tarts and vicars. So couples would come dressed up as like as a tart or a vicar. Usually the guy would be dressed as, as a priest or a vicar or a minister. And the wife would be dressed up as some sort of like their version of what they saw a tart to be a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a really embarrassing scene where somebody shows up at Bridget Jones mother's home for a party and they thought it was going to be tarts and vickers and everybody's there in business suits. Uh-oh. But then there's another wonderful, wonderful movie from the late eighties uh, starring. Oh my gosh. Now I'm blanking on her name. The name of the movie is personal services. It's the British movie with the actress that played Mrs. Weasley, Molly Weasley. Oh, I'm blanking okay. on her name. On. How here I am, former casting director, and I'm blanking. Tell on her us name. about it, and I'll look it up. What's it so, called again? Public service. Personal services, and what it is, it's a story of a of a single mom really struggling to support herself and her child, and she rents out a room to a sex worker who's a little bit spotty, and and she's not consistent in paying her rent on time, but she does explain to her about like, look, this is not always about sex. This is about an experience that people want. And she ends up becoming this very uh, successful uh, sex worker, but the tart card that gets, there's a great scene where there's a lovely older woman who is acting as the pimp. So she is taking the calls to screen potential clients and the card that is put in the phone booth is for a French polish. Do you have any furniture that needs to be polished? We give a lovely (laughs) French polish. Here's this phone number. And so this guy is calling and he says, yes, I have a lovely 
leg of a table that needs a polish. <laughs> and then the, the, uh, the older pimple is, is saying, oh, yes, she does a lovely job. Her polishing skills are lovely. You know, I love it. So, it's real. Julie Walters. Julie I just Walters. remember it. Julie okay. Walters. I, did you find it? I just I remembered did. it as I said that. Yes. That's God, hilarious. my mush brain. <laughs> like we said, it's real. Um, but, you know, this, how this looks today, I kind of think of if you guys have ever been to Vegas and you're walking down the strip, there are people just handing out these little glossy cards now for escorts or um, maybe they're clubs, but it's like they are shoving them in your face and they're just all over the ground. I actually didn't see them this last time that I went, but I wasn't out on the boulevard much. I think they've kind of cracked down on it, but you know, and it's like entire families. You got grandma and adults handing these out and it's (laughs) It's crazy. It's a part of the Vegas experience, but yeah, it absolutely um, you just try is. to like, you know, cover it's your quite kids a, eyes. And it's quite aggressive, by the way, like they're it just is really getting in your face. Like, do I, I mean, I will, we'll look at my, we'll look at what I was about to say. That was really dumb of me. I was about to say, do I look like I'm looking for this? I mean, <laughs> well, and it can, right. Cause it can be anybody, but like? you know, I'm like, I want to see the, the show on the pirate ship. I want to see the dancing <laughs> waters get out of my <laughs> face. Yes. Yes. Are they are they playing Michael Bublé at uh, the Dancing Ex- Waters right yes, now? Yes, exactly. Excuse me. Get out of my way. Um, so, I mean, most advertising is done online, and despite the benefits that you know, clearly some of these studies have shown, here in the United States in 2018, the Senate passed two acts that make advertising sex work online a federal crime, which is forcing people back on the street to be able to quote unquote advertise without using, you know, which especially with federally, I mean, you get busted for something federally, you're going to prison for a long time. So that was, that's interesting because some of the, the bigger sites are still online. I do know for male sex workers, there was a, the, one of the biggest ones was called rent boy. And I, and I think that was the one that really, was the folk was one of the focuses for mm. that particular law and they got shut down but there's a plethora of other sites that oh, are sure. active and so I don't really know like is anybody I wonder if they're actually pursuing that or if they did that because maybe there was something else maybe one or two maybe some of the agencies were m- doing money laundering for other purposes and that was the purpose of this particular law it would be interesting to find out. Yeah, yeah, it would be. And when we were getting ready to talk about this, one of our lovely Patreon members, Laura Kay from um, Australia, told us that we should look into the fact that in 1995, there was a sex work act passed in New South Wales, Australia, which was the first jurisdiction in the world to completely decriminalize adult sex work you know we have all those like weird if you can do this but you can't do this that you, you can buy but off. you can't sell uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's this it's really the the results of them taking that action have been yeah. nothing but positive from what the research shows right right i mean there it there's a lot of evidence-based research to show that this has just been nothing but good um There was a report in 2016 where the New South Wales government stated that the decriminalization is the best way to ensure 
not only sex worker safety, but also maintain transparency within the industry and be able to regulate. So um, who, who could possibly imagine that? It's like, it's like oh Colorado, Colorado, you know, putting sex education in the schools and providing, um, providing uh, contraception, contraception through Planned Parenthood. And they dropped the teen pregnancy rate and the abortion rate just precipitously. No like, what? Well, who could have possibly thought that this would happen if you actually take the correct action? It must be sorcery. I don't know. Right. And we just got done, you know, talking about four episodes of prohibition and what a shit show that was. Right. For crime. Right. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, really, it this this is 1995 it feels very recent to me but it this really started more 1979 is when this region started with the removal of criminal sanctions around certain aspects of street-based sex work um and then in 2003 the entire country of new zealand became the second jurisdiction in the world to completely decriminalize sex work so some very cool stuff going on that is working Clearly, those societies are not falling apart um, and doing very well. So I, I think, you know, as we reimagine many aspects of the criminal justice system in the United States, we're not quite ready to decriminalize it here yet. Um, but there are some new trends towards diversion and outreach that are happening as we start to look at this as a public health issue um, and more about it's unfortunately the outreach and the way that we're handling it now, it's a step towards something better, but it's more of getting the person out of sex work rather than legitimizing or regulating the trade. So we're still, we're still in that phase. Right. And those focuses are on people that are like, they are engaged in sex work, but it may be for more survival and more dire circumstances that are, co-occurring with other life challenges. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not, I I don't know what the answer is. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in that because it's, that's going to be a cultural shift in public policy. But I think that, you know, the more we talk about these things, the better, the more we have, we reduce like this, this quivering puritanical shame about talking about these issues. We can actually move forward with, with real life solutions um, that will benefit everyone. So pulling it back to the paper that I mentioned a little bit earlier, I met a group of people, really wonderful people at the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. And I went to Puerto Rico years ago for a fantastic conference where it was like the most amazing vibe to a psychological conference because it was just everybody was laid back and there were the most healthy discussions about sex you know, without marginalization, with just this sort of understanding that sexuality is, is a three-dimensional spectrum. It's a holographic spectrum and Mm -hmm. people fall all over it. And, you know, always going back to that idea of, you know, diagnosable paraphilia, it's not a problem if it's not causing problems in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I remember you were in internship and I remember you going to that and coming back and just talking about what an incredible experience it was and how refreshing to just, that's what I felt every time I went to an international conference, it was usually about sexual offending, but just to hear from people from other parts of the world and their views about sex and what we should be trying out as far as treatment and not being so, you know, 
having our panties in a twist about pornography. Seriously, (laughs) seriously. Yeah. Um, So I want to give shout outs to the three authors. Um, Dr. Julian Koken, uh, she is the associate professor in the health and human services program at LaGuardia Community College. She teaches and mentors there, uh, the students within the human services program. Her primary teaching areas are individual and group counseling, community health, drugs, society and human behavior and human sexuality. And her courses are taught from a biopsychosocial perspective, and she is a total badass. Um, I hope she will take that as the highest level of compliment for me. I hope I'm, but I just, I love her presentation was actually incredibly eye-opening for me. And I also spent the weekend with Dr. David Bimby. He is a social psychologist and he began his career as an HIV peer educator in New York. He, during graduate school, he served in a leadership role in the local LGBT and HIV AIDS communities and helped develop programming and organizing community events. And my dissertation advisor, Dr. Jeffrey Parsons and uh, Dr. Christian Grove were part of a really cool initiative called DIVA, Drag Initiative to Vanquish AIDS. And they would go to public events in the most amazing and hilarious drag and give uh, HIV awareness and education. I mean, it was just like this unbelievably warm and funny uh, and and psychoeducational way to deliver messages. And they were, I mean, the the photos of them and drag are like, these guys are freaking fearless. And I just think they're amazing. (laughs) Dr. Jeffrey Parsons, he was uh, head of the, the research lab where all this was happening at Hunter College in New York as part of uh, City University. And he is a psychologist working in other areas now. And he was my dissertation advisor and another just incredible wealth of information um, for my particular study. And what was, can you give us like a two second summary of what your dissertation was on? Oh, oh yeah, I mean, sure. Um, my The title of my um, dissertation was Riding Bareback, and it was the development of a bareback identity. And bareback was a term, we still talk about it. I mean, now there's a more trash term, not trash term, there's a more, <laughs> you know, slang term called raw dogging that's used in, in the hetero and homosexual communities or gay communities as well. But barebacking is, you know, all throughout the HIV Um, especially during the crisis years, there were people who continued to not use condoms and they were very, very like adamant. I am not going to use condoms. And it has become sort of an identity issue for many gay men. Um, And my, you know, it was, I wanted to find out like, what is it about these particular individuals that promotes this? So I gave a battery I had about 175 participants in the study and they all agreed to take these um, tests through SurveyMonkey. And really a lot of my, my theory did not pan out. I was thinking that there was going to be sort of a whole psychological profile and there wasn't. The only thing positive I found or positive that sort of was somewhat significant is a lot of the guys uh, scored very high on impulsivity. But oh, that's, sure. and even within the subpopulation of the game and, um, and the MSM community, we call it, uh, it's, we don't call it the gay community in the study stance, but we call it MSM men who have sex with men, because there are many men who have sex with men that absolutely do not identify as gay. Sure. So yeah. I wasn't trying to leave anybody out. I just wanted to like, okay, you engage in these behaviors because they're pleasurable to you. Why is it that you make the decision to not use prevention? And it was, you know, 
like many dissertations, it was it wasn't quite a null response as far sure. as like research, but there were some interesting things that came out of it. And it, you know, it's the trial by far when you're getting your doctor. You have to do right. your dissertation, and it's it's supposed to hurt. If it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right. Oh man, right. what are we talking about again? <laughs> Oops, boy. Can you do a follow up study and uh, I, yeah, see, see if um those individuals wore masks during the pandemic. That would be, that would be really interesting to find out. Yeah. So this is part of a, a, a book uh, that is a comparative analysis. And it's basically it, this chapter is it's explores the experiences of men and women who work as escorts, a form of what we call indoor sex work that's done independently of, or with the aid of an agency to make client referrals and expand a client pool. So um, just the background on it, the independent escorts range from those that are kind of casually involved in sex work on an as-needed basis. Like this is not something that they're doing full-time as their full-time career, but maybe supporting themselves or supplementing other parts of their income or supplementing their needs as needed. So they're not sort of looking at this as like a long-term career, but something to get them through these periods, sort of like going to the old trope of like, I'm in grad school when actually many of them are in grad school, yep. you know, um, marketing in the modern world has become a huge part of this industry for both independent and indoor sex workers. Um, the business of sex work, sex work uh, as an independent without an agency or a mediator now requires that individual to have a real skill in building a business and the factors that are involved, such as marketing, building and maintaining relationships with clients and then responding to the needs of the current market. So you've oh, got to- It's like having you know, you a got, podcast. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Wow. Yeah. It's exactly like having a podcast. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> We're being snarky, okay? Save the right, comments. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's amazing because it's, it's a, a reflection of how many industries have adapted and expanded due to the development and evolution of technology. And certainly this is one of them, you know, this is absolutely one of them. I think it sort of goes back to somebody, I wish I could know, remember what researcher said this, but they say any new technology that develops almost the first thing that's done is it's porn. used for sex, <laughs> like, yeah, for porn, like the minute photography was, was oh. really, and, or uh, action when not just photography, but uh, when film was developed, it's like oh, we've yeah. got some of the first scandalous racy films that were, you know, done within a couple of years of the medium being developed. What so, do you expect? We're giving monkeys tokens and they're whoring themselves out. Like, exactly. On, adults are going to take advantage of the technology or adults, humans. <laughs> yeah. Well, now I want tokens. I just want tokens. <laughs> I bet you do. Um <laughs> So uh, often, many of the people that identify as escorts in these uh, in these settings will have to navigate their way through the first part of their job experience by making a lot of mistakes, you know, trial and error, and that can be really dangerous. And in the best case scenarios that we can imagine, these sex workers will be able to reach out to mentors or friends who do similar work that will then provide them guidance so that they know what to do. And like, this has even been portrayed in sort of not the greatest movie musical, but a wonderful stage musical of the best little whorehouse in Texas. <gasps> that there's a storyline of a, a young one that is mentored. Yeah. There's a really sweet song that 
Oh yeah. Now that I don't know how I feel about it now, I have to actually go back and watch it. I'm gonna talk about it. We're gonna get. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I won't talk about it now. My fave. Okay. Important. The mentorship is really important, as the sex workers need to have and develop the skills that allow them to recognize their and understand their sense of safety and develop sort of that internal radar uh, for understanding what is potentially a dangerous situation. Because even when you have the protection of an agency. There are new clients that come along that the screeners may not get all the information. Um, so oh, also they have to be, pre- be prepared for law enforcement because it's still considered an illegal act. So, you know, how would, how would law enforcement go about trying to, I don't know, to take action against someone who's a, a sex worker, like, or when do they decide when it's problematic in a big city? Well, I, I was going to say, I think it varies from big city to small city. Um, how much other ripple effect is there from the sex work that's happening is probably something they're going to take a look at. Sorry, my dog is barking. Like it's, okay. in the back it's Ellie. It's Ellie. Um, <laughs> um, she didn't get the memo that we're recording, I guess. But um, it, I think if it's problematic, if there's other bigger issues that are coming from it like drugs gang involvement you know the area of town where it's happening obviously it's going to be more of a focus like taking this multi uh crime approach to sort of enforcing everything that's going on and or the demand of the community so if the community is saying hey i don't like driving down the street with my family because we see this law enforcement serves the community and serves the public and they're going to enforce the laws, which is their job that the community sees as important. So problematic. Okay. Yeah. I think it's going to depend on jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, I was talking with my husband earlier today because the city he works in is, has always been kind of known for being a hotspot for street prostitution. Um, and asking how they're handling that because he oversees a unit called the quality of life unit. And they do, um, they are responsible for a lot of like homelessness outreach um, and working with that population and, and a lot of other things. But I think the sex work and, and prostitution is kind of falling under that now. And they're looking at these different opportunities for diversion, what they're calling diversion, like on the front end. So essentially kind of in lieu of being arrested, they can say, do you want resources? Do you want outreach? Or, you know, do you want diversion? Meaning you have to abide by all these things if you agree, or you'll end up being prosecuted and filed on. Okay. Um, so like I was saying earlier, there is some of this front end trying to look at it with social services. Um, but then it depends what district attorney you have, which in this right. county is kind of crazy right now. But there's... There's so many variables. Interesting. Well, getting back to the, the research, um, you have to, one of the things that, that happens with sex workers, whether independent or through an agency, is they have to establish, exert, and maintain their boundaries in sessions with clients. And that is an evolutionary process too. And sometimes it's trial and error, even though they may have been warned or prepared by their peers about what to expect. Now, what came out out of the research that I found fascinating really came down to 
um, sex and, uh, and race and what complicates the process for both male and female sex workers is that they have to manage and mediate the stress that arises from dealing with racist attitudes, mm-hmm. primarily those clients that are typically white middle-class males. Sure. And this is really difficult for women of color. It's really challenging for women of color. Um, the research found that white middle-class men make up the majority of clients and they had that significant numbers of them held racial stereotype fantasies about escorts of color and that there's an established racial hierarchy within escorting. Many escorts, particularly African-American women and men, actually reported experiencing discrimination while on the job. And while the framework of white escorts were interviewed for the study, they were aware of the racial stratification within this profession as well. And they, they saw it as well. Like, it's not just Right. Black men and women making this up. It's like everybody is witnessing it. And, and, you know, it's just sort of an accepted part of it because That's your client base is your client base. I would but love it, to oh, know oh, more it, about that. Oh, no, it's, it's crazy. The numbers, it's crazy. And we'll circle back around to it. But basically what Dr. Koken was able to present and find was showing that based on advertising that many female sex workers, escorts would present themselves as, and most of them actually are very well educated, but they would say like doctoral student or a doctor of psychology or a doctor of this or MBA, and it would raise the amount of money that they could get. But you could have a person of color who has all of the same attributes, and it still would not be able to allow her or him to demand the top tier of money that wow. a white woman could get. Talk about it's, objectification at its, its core, right? It's crazy. I mean, it's so interesting. And I just, I, I think it's amazing um, that they actually asked these questions. I think the development of this questionnaire and the and data they got is just really fascinating. So escorts really recognize um, a need to maintain an image that reaches out to the masses and appeals to the biggest number of potential clients as possible. And this requires strategization and really insight into a market um, in order to mine that potential. And so one woman that is part of this study does this by rotating or having simultaneous postings of up to 14 advertisements in an effort to keep up with the client demand for new faces. So if you've got the same pool of people that are looking at the same um, online sources or magazine sources if you have to, it's almost like they get saturated with the pictures that they see. So they have to get constantly new. And she came up with a really great strategy is I'm going to read the quote. I buy stock photos online. I look for somebody that looks something like me and for photos that are not nude or trashy. It might be sensual or so some cleavage, but they're not going to be very explicit. I change ads now and then because they lose popularity once they've been up for a while. Sometimes I have two up at the same time. I have a friend that advertises four or five ads at once. And when she can't go, she says she keeps a commission and I take the job. So because they have similar looks, yeah. they're able yeah. to do that. And it just, it's a way of keeping it fresh. But um, one of the things that's frustrating for many, especially of the females, is that they do their best to deter away from being presented as a dumb hooker. And I'm using the quote that they, that many of them came up with. Mm-hmm. So that must be a phrase that's used a lot. And uh, 
that's problematic because if a, a customer is coming in with that assumption, that's usually going to carry a lot of other potential issues with it if they're right. that disinhibited to have that kind of perspective or language. Oh, sure. So they're they're screening those suitors out early. Wow. Um, so did you know that Barbie actually started off as a call girl? <laughs> so I had no idea. I, had, I like you, you found this research. I had no idea. I know Barbie. So <laughs> Barbie actually started out her life before she was Barbie. Um, in the late 1940s, there was a German cartoon character, Build Lily, and she was in print media. So I don't know, not, I don't think like your, uh, you know, comic strips and in the newspapers over there, but essentially they were put up in like cigar stands and areas where men would be. And this cartoon, this character of Lily, she was supposed to be this post-war gold digging buxom broad who basically got by in life by su- seducing wealthy male suitors. By finding a sugar daddy. By finding a sugar daddy, yeah. Um, so this was happening in Germany, and then and they eventually turned her into a doll. And there's like photos of like German pilots, and they have uh, Lily up on the dashboard of the aircraft. Like it was just like this weird, it wasn't never, it was never meant for children. It was just like this little figurine for men to have. And in the 1950s, one of the founders of Mattel, Ruth Handler, she was traveling to Europe and she saw this doll and she bought a few of them and brought them home and rebranded that baby and designed it, turned it into Barbie, which debuted in the 1959 New York Toy Fair. That's so crazy. I class call girl Barbie. That's really She was crazy. not an astronaut back then. She was she wasn't, not a not librarian. <laughs> she was getting by. Um, fascinating. Thank you for that. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Heading like circling back around to some of the issues of race in this particular study, one of the participants who a black female escort um, shared her strategy for creating advertisements after she was frustrated with coming up against these stereotypic expectations or stereotypical expectations. And she's, I'm going to quote her. I wrote a poem. I wanted to be special. I wanted them to know that they were getting someone intelligent, not a knucklehead. I can't pull off the knucklehead type. I talk too much. And people would know, listen, you're smart. So I wrote a poem because I wanted to be a little bit different than the rest of the ads. I think that's fascinating as well and a great strategy. Um, And then another Black female who reported a high level of burnout from the profession, which that's a whole other episode right there about the burnout levels in working in this industry or profession. And she was frustrated with the way her agency marketed her. 
Here's a quote. There was this woman that I was working with who was trying to start up her own agency, but the way she marketed me was kind of like a knucklehead describing me as someone who likes to be spanked as this bad girl. And she would put spelling errors on the ad. It was just really kind of like low grade stuff. Wow. And I like, when I read that in the chapter, it's, it punches you. Yeah, like like here's on this purpose, person. putting spelling errors to make her seem less educated. Yes. Oh, that, I mean, I could, I mean, wow. I'm, I can imagine the, le- I can only imagine the level of yeah. frustration she must feel. So another escort explained the complexities of some of the particular fantasies that are desired by white men that want to her to enact a white master black slave scenario, or what she termed as the black goddess scenario, where, you know, she's a racially charged dominatrix scene. And each one of these scenarios are uncomfortable and they place the escort in the position of adopting these cognitive coping skills, you know, like internally reassuring themselves that like, this is just role play. This is just entertaining. It's not real life. And I, when I read that in the study, all I could think was like, well, that's, you're compartmentalizing that that's trauma. You know, like you do that long enough, you know, the internalizing of the trauma. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, but it just really made my heart go out to this woman who agreed to be part of the study. I mean, that, that fantasy relationship is not real life, but you know, what is real life? The racism behind that. Exactly. Absolutely. So the hierarchy of this is reflected in the comparison of hourly rates charged by the women that were researched in this project. White women's fees ranged up to $1,000 per hour, but no woman of color in this sample charged more than $500 per hour. And the mode rate for white women in the sample was $500 and for women of color, it was 400 It's just like, mm. look at the disparity in Huge. the amount to charge. That's just fascinating to me. Um, so the advertisements for male escorts focus on and emphasize what we would call... Um, or what they described uh, elite culture, quote unquote. And they would present, like I was talking about earlier, in their ads, aspects of their education. And this is, this is what is significant in almost all the ads. Their ability to move easily through upper middle class and higher class situations, but combined with a more overt and frank sexual or erotic tone. Mm. So they were able to be more overt about sexuality in their ads but also with this like, hey, you can take me to the company meeting and I'll, right. I can put on a tux, I can put on a suit and I can, you know, move. it's a very weird, different dynamic. Um, the rates charged by men of color were not different from those that were charged by white men, but men of color did report confronting some of the similar attitudes from potential clients online, which mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. And I'm going to quote this one. This is really painful to me. Uh, but I think it's important to say, this is from a, uh, a black male escort. I don't get certain clients. I've had a lot of people tell me that I'm like beautiful body, but you're wrong color. They've emailed, they've mailed me and said things like, I've uh, like really demeaning comments. Like one would basically belittle me to the point where they, they don't want to pay so much for a N word. Yeah. I think, can you imagine like you're reaching out? Well, I'm not going to pay that much for that you right. and then use right. that term. So what's your rate? And I tell them and they say, Oh, that's way too much. I'd never pay that much for a N word. Maybe I'd pay 25 or 30 bucks, maybe. And the uh, guy goes, and that can be really emotionally disturbing. Like what is up with that? What are the, what is with the way these men think? So again, another example of just this like 
horrific levels of racism. Sure. You know, and also trying to like, like bargain somebody down. I know. And they're using their physicality. I mean, this is another thing of like, we talk about sex work as if it's this particular thing of like, oh, you're selling your body. Well, what do you think coal miners are doing? Yeah, coal no miners kidding. are selling their body. Like, like, ditch, like anybody that works in, in the necessary physical labor to keep our society mm-hmm. moving is, is selling their body oh, in, in a way. So like, why do we look at it differently? I, true. Yeah. So across the board, though, one of the commonalities is that um, the people who are marketing themselves, the escorts that are marketing themselves, really that one of the successful strategies to market as an experience, like the girlfriend or the boyfriend experience. They're placing an emphasis on presenting the idealized version of their actual self as perceived by what their client wants out of mm-hmm. the situation. And those are people that are I believe they're setting up for the expectation that they will have return clients that come on a regular basis that they can have this sort of rarefied virtual girlfriend, boyfriend experience. So in other words, they, they are working very closely to align client expectations with their own personal preferences so that they don't have to be pulled out of their comfort zone and they can feel and establish a sense of safety. I love that. I think that's very strategic and smart. So in their, their aim in the first sessions or offer sessions is something that closely resembles a date and one that is really, you know, pleasurable for both the worker and the client. And this is a great quote from one of the, the women. What I've learned over the years working independently is the absolute best way to market yourself is to try and find as many like-minded people as you can. You don't try and market yourself to the people that aren't on the same page as you or have different likes. The more real you can be, the more you can put yourself out there as a person while still maintaining certain boundaries about your personal life. That's going to encourage like-minded people, better chemistry, better repeat clients, and then you can enjoy your work. Hmm. Wow. That really, I mean. That's a really, that's an interesting strategy. It is right? because, and in, in I like that she puts in there about maintaining boundaries because yeah. it could get pretty blurry. I mean, when oh, you're yeah. trying to be a more, what she's saying is you try to be a more authentic version of yourself by finding people that you would like to spend time with really right. like, you know, and that, that, ooh, that would be really hard. Right. I, I, I think it is probably clear to people that the psychological distress is higher in women working in the sex industry because of the way the industry has to be navigated, all the things we've talked about, the violence associated with it being unregulated and criminalized. So I wanted to find a couple recent studies from various parts of the world just to look at how they're impacted psychologically. And I found one from India that had 100 participants. And India, we talked about you know that it's, it's legal if it's done inside a home. However, uh, underage sex sex work is really rampant in India. Um, But this was just looking at women, adult women. There was 9% of respondents reported having major depressive, having a major depressive episode. 25% of the respondents reported major depressive episode in the past. So that 9% was like currently at the time they were doing the study. Uh, 21% of the respondents reported post-traumatic stress disorder and very likely the authors assumed that that was related to the job. 8% of the respondents reported to have alcohol dependence. 
there was 3% that said they had non-alcohol psychoactive substance use disorder, and 8% of the respondents were found to have a generalized anxiety disorder. Interestingly, 9% of the respondents were found to have antisocial personality disorder. That one I just threw in there, I was like, what? I want to know more about that. But yes. Um, so probably like diagnoses you would expect, I'm guessing, it may, except for that last one. But do these fall in line with what you would kind of expect someone who's suffering through having to work in this trade where it's unregulated and criminalized to deal with? Well, absolutely. Depression, anxiety, PTSD. Right. I mean, that I was actually kind of like, where the, where is that antisocial ASPD coming from? But then I, I, you know, certainly as we come to understand any of the, we're getting certainly a lot more information about personality disorders, even in just the last three years that are understanding how many of those particular traits are, are trauma-based and PTSD based. And that certainly could, could account for that very high number. I mean, that's, that's more than double the world rate for ASPD. Yeah. I, I wonder if it has anything to do with, with the, the little bit that I know about prostitution in India, especially a lot of the underage sex workers are being put to work by usually like a, I'm going to do this in hard air quotes, like an adult female madam. Right. I'm guessing, you know, at some point she's engaged in the sex work as well, or, you know, has at some point, but I'm wondering if these are the, some of the adults they're capturing. And if these women are going on to essentially, you know, being wrapped up in this child sexual abuse, I don't know, you know, for those that, that end up making a business themselves out of it, they might be the more antisocial. Right. Uh, a huge study in Canada, 600 participants found basically the same thing. I mean, and disproportionately the mental health burden experienced by women in sex work is just, it's, it's there, it's real. So, um, 40, over 48% reported ever being diagnosed with a mental health issue with the most common diagnoses being depression, um, at 35% and anxiety at just about 20%. And they found that, women with mental health diagnoses were more likely to either identify as a sexual or gender minority, LGBTQ community, um, to use non-injection drugs, to have experienced childhood physical or sexual trauma, and they are working in informal indoor or street public spaces. So um, when they say informal, you know, I'm thinking more independently um, and not associated with anything that has even a screening process. To I'm it. glad I'm glad you're sharing this data because what it really is doing is that I, I, we want to make sure that we're creating and offering to our listening audience a a, a profound and three dimensional or four dimensional view of this phenomenon. We're not we're not portraying it as like certainly the the best across the board for anything. And it's problematic in many ways. And there are some places clearly like you were talking about New South Wales is, is doing the right thing. And New Zealand is doing the right thing and getting on top of this in a a way that, that doesn't marginalize people and certainly areas of Europe. And here we have a a part of the world that 
you know, is not handling it so well and certainly has a very different view on the rights of children, a very mm-hmm. different view on the rights of children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's going to depend where you're at in the world, what the laws are there, the way in which you're going about the work. I mean, all of that, it, it, it would be so interesting to look at uh, New Zealand and see what the mental health of their sex workers are like to be able to compare to these this India study and this Canada study. Um, so true crime, right? We, we mentioned the, the repetitive story of sex workers as victims of violent crime, especially, um, you know, in these serial killer cases that we've talked about, the Long Island serial killer, Green River killer, any of the highway truckers, serial killings that we talk about. I mean, it's how we most often, unfortunately, think of sex workers in, in true crime. And you know, that's not to be mitigated and shouldn't get better coverage like in Lost Girls, right? With Bob Colker highlighting these female victims by making incredible connections with their families to where they trusted so him. Yeah. And, um, you know, has been sort of his legacy of being able to do that. And I heard him speak about his newest book, Hidden Valley Road, where someone said, hey, you should check out the story because you're so good at letting families let you in when it's not the best of circumstances. And um, it's just, you know, there, there definitely needs to be more of that and in the field altogether, um, any, any platform of true crime. But, you know, what sticks out to me is the most high profile example of a true crime story where we're the criminalization of the sex worker rather than her being a victim is Heidi Fleiss. And, yep. you know, being from Los Angeles and being around when this was major news in the, the 90s, um, you know, this is definitely prominent to me. Um, and she was a woman that ran an upscale prostitution ring based in Los Angeles and has, is often referred to as the Hollywood Madam. But at 22, she, she grew up in Los Feliz area of Los Angeles. Um, at 22, she was managing another sex worker ring under a different madam in Los Angeles and talks about, you know, occasionally engaging in the sex work herself to sort of better understand the business aspect of it. Um, it was a really difficult existence. She had a lot of conflict. There seemed to be a lot of abusiveness from this madam to her. Um, so eventually she ends up in 1990 starting her own and it was quite successful. Um, she got to the point where she said she was making her cut was like $10,000 a night. She was able to turn down women who wanted to come and work for her at, at her, um, agency. And eventually, you know, she ends up getting arrested and charged both by the state and federally in 1993. And, um, she ended up being convicted of tax evasion, which, you know, is a pretty easy conviction to get federally. Every, anyone can get dinged on that, it seems like, and served seven years in federal prison. Um, but, you know, the thing about her and why it was so high, high profile was because supposedly there were numerous prominent and wealthy clients in every echelon <laughs> LA was shaking in its boots. At oh, the time. yes. 
it oh, was yes. it was a very big deal because is she going to talk? Her, is she going to reveal gonna, her list? Is she going to share her black book? And right. yeah, people were really really scared. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But when questioned, you know, about revealing the names of her clients, she said it's not my style. So um, she also appeared. <clears throat> excuse me. She also appeared in the. 2009 season of Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew, which is my favorite season. <laughs> um, it was very turbulent. She was on there with her ex-boyfriend, Tom Sizemore. And it was intense. Had, it was very intense. And especially when they put the two of them together, because they had a, a long history of um, intimate partner violence and addiction. And um, yeah, it was it was very turbulent. She now is in Nevada. She was going to open up a brothel out there, um, but she ended up not doing that. She ran a pot farm for a little while, and now she actually owns and operates a small airport in Nevada. I did not know that at all. Good for her. Businesswoman extraordinaire, for sure. Yeah, I mean, seriously, at 22, to be doing that, that's that's impressive skills. I mean, to be able to manage that kind of business. Because that that's a that's that's a lot of organization. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, but yeah, I mean, she she kind of crossed over, you know, the true crime, and then crossing over into entertainment a little bit, like you know, some people try to do with their newfound celebrity, I guess, even if it's for crimes. Yeah. Um, but it's very interesting. I mean, I just thought for us to we have to touch on how sex work is been portrayed and it, it, I think it's been portrayed sort of all over the place in Hollywood um, but just the most famous depictions I mean how can you not think of Pretty Woman coming back right. full circle to Richard Gere um, and literally a Cinderella story is how they're pawning that off yeah us. I mean well <laughs> look you know you're you're big for your note here in our our show outline is how have our perspectives changed? And I think that's mm-hmm. a really great way of framing, like certainly when you look at Pretty Woman, you know, it was like this sort of, it was a Cinderella story. It was magic. And you had these two, uh, you know, radiant and glowing stars, each in their own way, you know, Julia Robertson and Richard Gere, very different types of actors, mm-hmm. but really great performances and also inhabits a time like that was an 80s movie like it was yes. really a thing and you know you look at it and you just like oh we we're gonna kind of look past all the the bad parts and you really only see like a couple of elements like i didn't get to shop which is also sent up really fun in a funny way in sure. Romy and michelle's high school reunion <laughs> but so you see like her feeling like she's marginalized and then the hotel is like really actually quite helpful, which actually, you know, if somebody's rich enough, the hotel is absolutely going to do yeah, exactly no shit. <laughs> that's exactly going to happen. And that yeah. is not exaggeration at all. But I would say that what the movie does is it, it does not, I mean, they were trying to do two things. They were trying to make her not be alienated from the audience, but not also show how difficult being a street sex worker at that time would have been in Hollywood and it would have been a lot more gritty oh, than the gosh, way it was portrayed yeah. a lot more gritty and a lot more dangerous and then you know there are plenty of female authors who have made some really great observations about there's there's an aspect of coercive control mm-hmm. in this and um it's still kind of 
sinks to the trope of the the white knight coming to rescue her, even though they do the writing is trying to pose that there is a choice here that's being made and she's making a choice to leave the industry and pursue what she's going to pursue. And it's still, it is problematic in the way that many portrayals historically now we're understanding to be problematic. And I think that we have to walk that line between looking at what is realistic and what was accepted for the time and and are we going to sit with it and like i don't have all the answers for that i think that but i think we have to discuss it like does it actually hold an important place in sort of art history and anthropological history and cultural history i don't know if pretty woman really holds i don't know holds like i think it's a fun movie but then you know right. as you get older like our perspectives do change and american gigolo is kind of kind of the same way it's all shot in this sort of glowy way and it's also like it's very homophobic you know like mm-hmm. i don't do that you like i don't mm-hmm. i'm not one of those types of male escorts so even then he's marginalizing the you know the lgbtq community sure sure yeah i mean there's there's been so many and like i said before you can't have a major show or film about a western without there being a core female character that is a prostitute or a madam of a brothel um and with that, I mean, you've already touched on it, but my absolute favorite is Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. I've never saw the stage play. Oh, it's so fantastic. But from a pretty young age, I mean, I, 1982, I think is when it came out. Um, but I know my mom was a big fan. I mean, she's a huge country Western fan anyway. So anything like Dolly Parton, um, who is can do no wrong in anything, really. And so perfect for that role, but um, I the the music, the movie is just so fun. You can still see the house in the back lot of Universal Studios; <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> um, but love that movie. I and and never, you know, it's so interesting because I went back and watched it recently, and I was like, well, I wonder if I would let my kid watch this because I certainly watched it as a kid. But would I have a lot of explaining to do? <laughs> but it's, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of explaining. I can't imagine that as a parent. Yeah, and, it's it, it's a lot of um, glorification of sex work. And, um, you know, it, like you were talking earlier about the character from Gone with the Wind, Dolly Parton, who plays the madam of the chicken ranch, is very much like that, too. Like, she's donating money to the local Little League and, like, total upstanding citizen in the town and um having an affair with the sheriff of the town um Burt Reynolds you know they're such a great have such great on-screen chemistry together it's Um, also overall it's very sweet you know what it is is, is they go for a very sweet very um sanitized version and I don't mean sanitized as necessarily marginalizing this work it's not about whether or not they make the work look acceptable or not, because they really just, I don't know if I'd say they glorify, but they normalize it in a way. Yeah. They're um, kind of a part of the town. They're which a part is of the, the community. Yeah, and the they just, ha- they just happen to become part of a political stance that somebody's like, well, I got to find something. I got to find a political platform to run on. So I'm going to talk about yes. how horrible <laughs> the chicken ranch is, but I will say this, there are things that the stage play does a lot better that touch on um, even more profound issues and about domestic violence, you know, mm. like women that were escaping domestic violence and they've got nowhere else to go. 
So they go to the chicken ranch and they're accepted by this female community that teach them how to find resiliency and strength. And, you know, Dolly Parton is like, she is a, a force of nature unto herself with her sweetness and her charm. But the way the role is done is not quite, it's a little more hard ass. The woman, mm. like when she's singing to the rules to her girls, right. as she calls them, she's like, no, these are the rules and you break the rules and you're out. And right. the rules are all very great. They're meant to protect everybody. Yep. But also one of the things that the musical does is the sheriff is actually a lot older than her. So, okay. uh, you know, what, uh, what's the character's name? Uh, Mona, sheriff or- Miss Mona, Miss Mona. Miss Mona yeah. So Miss Mona is like just sort of really coming. She's just below middle age mm-hmm. and he's just past middle age. And they, it's not, they're not quite as accepted by the town as they are in the movie. The movie kind of like carnivalizes a little bit more than, sure. the, than the stage does, but still, I think it's an, an interesting, I think it's something that actually should be, you know, continued to look at that. Like that's a good musical. I don't, that Burt Reynolds can't sing a note, so. No, he can't, he can't, but it was funny going back and watching it, and I was like, oh my god, that dance scene with the football players, because they win the college game. The Aggies, yeah. And then they're, you know, promised a night at the chicken ranch, but I'm sorry, that dance scene is gayer than, like, any Top Gun volleyball scene ever is. It is. Yeah. It definitely is. I mean, very good dancers and like, it, oh um, my like God, the really, best. really great dancers. I was in college <laughs> at the time. And I remember Deb, like our lovely friend, actress uh-huh. Deb, we were, that was the summer that we were doing uh summer stock together. And she gave, she's like, those are the hottest guys I've ever right? seen. This is really funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I already talked about Moulin Rouge. I mean, talk about another one that, um, you know, has themes of courtesans in it and what they'll do for the show and uh to be funded and to be um turned into stars right i mean we're kind of right and even overlapping themes right but even moulin rouge is problematic because nicole kidman's what is it it fatima i can't remember what her character's name is uh satin satin okay so her character in moulin rouge is another trope that you have to die like the female oh, yes, who yes. is abstained virtue can't live. She has to die. So she's got tuberculosis, like the entire right. show and like, yeah. thing, you know, clearly not caring who she's giving it to as she's like, you know, yeah, swapping spit with you and McGregor <laughs> and coughing up blood. <laughs> but it's another one of those tropes is like, oh, well, you can have this, this sort of uh, glamorous, uh, rarefied life, but we have to kill you in the end. You know? uh, yes. Yes. So, yeah, uh, and what are then yours? Well, look, oh. you, were gonna t- you have to talk about <laughs> idiocracy because idiocracy is both. That was one of the things you and I bonded on. We kept. Yes, we did. On, on rough days, I'd like, you want a latte? I want a latte. <laughs> I like lattes. Yeah. So talk about sex work. I mean, lap dances are now lattes at Starbucks in the movie Idiocracy. But right. Maya Rudolph plays a sex worker who is, well, I mean, the whole if you guys haven't seen it basically i don't know how many years into the future they go but um she and a, then a guy from a military are kind of chosen as these science experiments to um be frozen for several several decades and then um released out into the world somewhere down in the future but um 
it's so funny. Just like the first scene between them where he's like, oh, so what, what, what do you do in the military? And she's like, I'm not in the military. I'm in the private industry. <laughs> and he's like, oh, cool. So what do you do? Little of this, little of that. He's like, oh man, I love people are so talented. They could just do a little of this, a little of that. Like you're an artist. Are you a painter? She's like, yeah. <laughs> She's just so hilarious yeah. and dry and just like yeah. over this guy. He's such an idiot. It's great. And the, of course the irony is that she's very savvy. She's sure. very, very savvy about the world. He is not so savvy about anything, but they awake in a world. They sleep a lot longer than they were supposed to. And when they wake up, uh, they are really, they're really the two smartest people in the world exactly. because the, the intelligence level of the world has really sunk down. So the people, <laughs> there are some people that really hate that movie. I, I love it. And I love oh her God, portrayal love of a very, of a smart, savvy woman. Yep. I, I have a favorite from season one of a show called American Gods that's based on the Neil Gaiman novel, American Gods. Um, Loved which, that season of that Yeah, show. it oh. was really, really one of the best. I, I actually kind of gave up after a while because it was all over the place. But one of my favorite characters is the goddess. And you're not really sure if she actually is. Is she a goddess? Is she actually a demon? But she has survived over the millennia, as have some of the gods. Some of the gods have actually survived because they are revered in some way. And she is the goddess Bilquis, who was a fertility goddess. And she works as a sex worker and she gives men ultimate pleasure in their encounters. And then she eats them. But like yeah. they're, she's, they're absorbed through her vagina into this sort of cosmic galactic void within her body. And they, that gives her sustenance and power. Uh -huh. And I just found like that to be fascinating on one level because you see her completely in her really godlike powers of sensuality and sexuality and then you see when she hasn't fed and when right. she hasn't had that that sort of physical validation and they the actress is fantastic because she morphs between these these periods of like her energy being low and her color being down. And then mm -hmm. when she starts glowing from, you know, being yeah, able to, to take these worshipers, it's fantastic. Yeah. That's a neat, so, neat example. The other example I wanted to give, which was sort of an eye opener for me about pretty woman was that same summer. It came out SNL did a skit. And this was the years when Mike Myers uh, was a regular cast member and they had, uh, a takeoff on Pretty Woman that was basically supposed to be what if a rich man actually had picked up a a sex worker who worked in outdoors and what that would realistically look like. And what they did was, I mean, at the time I thought it was really funny. And now looking back on it, I'm like, oh, that's not funny at all. Uh -oh. Because they really kind of portray her as being diseased and um, drug addicted and uncouth and, and, you know, just really, really low class. Um, so really uneducated. playing up a stereotype of Real, yeah. what people and, think is. I mean, in one way I got like what they were talking about, it's the, the feel good prostitute movie of the year. So I get that they were trying to make a commentary on what Pretty Woman sure. was doing. Sure. The way they went about it was to further marginalize and demonize the people that work in this industry and mm. you know, that, that was problematic. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and I wanted to, I was trying to spark my 
um, memory of other depictions, but I came across this fantastic article that was written by a veteran sex worker that was very interesting where she kind of runs down her list of the most realistic depictions. Oh, and wow. And she even, in, the, in a portion, she even asked her coworkers and different types, cam girls, escorts, um, women who work outdoors, you know, what, what do you think, what are your favorite depictions of us in entertainment? And interestingly, um, one, I think it was an escort that she interviewed cited the Britney Spears video lucky as being a depiction of sex work, but it was sort of, which is, it's not, but it's, you know, she's so lucky to be this famous star and celebrity, but no one really knows how much she's hurting on the inside. And I thought, Oh God, in this time of like the documentary about Britney, like how um, interesting, but the, the author, she talked about an HBO period drama called the deuce. Did you ever watch that? I, I, I watched some, I watched like the first two episode because it's Maggie Gyllenhaal and she's mm-hmm. fantastic. And there was just so much going on. And, but it was funny, Didi, our, the psychiatric nurse yeah. I work with, Didi would like, would come in after every episode. Did you watch it? Did you watch it? It's the best show ever. It's, it's the best vice. show ever. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. She just, it's her wire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it supposedly, you know, she said it was very gritty. It was greasy. It was about 1970s basically red light district, um, illegal red light district in New York. York. Yeah. So, um, but she said, this is what resonated with her as being the most realistic in its time period. Um, she also said she really liked, uh, Sharon stone and casino for the reason that like, she's kind of at the top of her game, like doing her thing, making a lot of money, but also really still vulnerable with a lot of dark impulses. Right. Um, and then what a great depiction I had totally forgot of, but was Marissa Tomei in The Wrestler. Yeah. And she said like this, it, to be a mother and to be um, a sex worker is such a interesting dynamic. And she feels like she really nailed it in this film. Um, and that was just interesting to, you know, it was the first thing that I came across in all of reading all of this, of talking even a little bit about parenthood. Um, and then she said that, um, in the Florida project, so she thought this was the most accurate representation of a sex worker in a really long time with a young woman supporting her child by doing sex work. I did not, I wasn't aware that I have not seen it. I haven't seen it either. Okay. I have to watch it. Everyone says it's amazing. Yeah. Everybody loves it. Every time someone watches it, they take a screenshot and they're like, oh my God, this little girl looks just like your daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which she really does. She always plays, she's a great little actress. And she, after this, she started doing like all these weird, creepy horror films where she was the creepy kid. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, okay. That's kind of my kid. (laughs) Yeah. She can do that. She can pull that off. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, just some great reminders of some depictions I hadn't remembered and others that I want to see. So Yeah, this is, thank you for suggesting this idea. I think we really went down only one of the rabbit holes that this topic can cover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we only at the end were able to kind of tie in some of the true crime aspects, but I think it's important that we may be, when we do future episodes of, about victims who are sex workers or sex workers that are engaged in, in, in criminal activities, which is, you know, another clearly a subset this will be a good reminder episode for people to come back and get a, a refresher on, on, on what 
what is actually going on overall in the industry yeah. that is really not about like hardcore criminal criminal activities, but also where people can get taken advantage of and and the the need for awareness right. in that area. I just I thought it was worth a deeper conversation rather than just let's stop using a certain term or you know why are we just talking about you know what these women do for work rather than seeing them as people but really to get an understanding of the history of it I would love to hear from either well I we love to hear from everybody but again if there are listeners that have more expertise in any of these areas we have people send us articles all the time, journal articles, you know, academic research. We love to read that. Um, or just personal experience of, uh, I don't know. I mean, if someone's like, Hey, yeah, I do some camming every once in a while, but I don't consider myself a sex worker. Like I would love to hear different perspectives, That'd be fascinating. Pers- yeah. <laughs> yeah, perspectives on this. So please reach out, you know, where you guys can contact us. So long episode. Yes, I know. Some people love it. That's true. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. We will hopefully you will be uh, seeing us this week on our and every week after we drop an episode, you'll be seeing us on our Get Vocal. Yes. And uh, we always have a great time. So please join us and we'll see you next time on L.A. Not so confidential. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast, so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.